Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Kay, a senior editor at Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. This week's guest is Shannon Thrace, author of the newly published book, 18 Months, A Memoir of a Marriage Lost to Gender Identity. In 18 Months, which I recently reviewed at Quillette, Shannon describes the dissolution of her 16-year marriage to a man she describes under the pseudonym of Jamie. As Shannon tells the story, the relationship began collapsing shortly after Jamie became interested in cross-dressing during sex. At first, the author tells us, she was supportive of Jamie's new interests. Shannon herself was no prude, having formerly worked at a drag bar and having spent periods of her adulthood in a polyamorous lesbian relationship. Shannon also initially remained supportive when Jamie began to self-describe as transgender. There was nothing wrong with gender transition, Shannon reminded herself. This would be the same Jamie she knew and loved, just with a different kind of appearance and identity. But as the months passed, Jamie began to change in other ways. In particular, Jamie became deeply immersed in online transgender chat groups that presented the issue of gender identity in militant and highly ideological terms. According to Jamie's new outlook, anyone who didn't now see him as fully female, and indeed fully feminine, was a hurtful bigot, a transphobe, or as they now say, a so-called TERF. What's more, Shannon's friends, and even therapists, insisted that it was Shannon who had to accommodate herself to this new reality within the marriage. And when Shannon expressed any sort of hesitation or concern, Jamie would denounce her with the same rhetoric and slogans that now filled his online world, language that Shannon found confusing and alienating. Eventually, Shannon reports, it became impossible to have any kind of meaningful communication within the relationship because even small arguments would quickly spiral into dogmatic sermons from Jamie in which Shannon would be denounced for not respecting Jamie's existence or affirming Jamie's identity. By Shannon's account, Jamie also became fantastically delicate, so much so that a retail clerk's failure to immediately recognize Jamie as a self-described woman would lead Jamie to complete emotional collapse. Much of the book consists of a kind of exploration in which Shannon searches Jamie's past and their shared past as a couple for some understanding of how all this happened. From Jamie's first marriage, which Jamie abandoned after he met Shannon, to Jamie's interest in Dungeons and Dragons and other fantasy realms, and Jamie's difficulty processing death and aging. Given the way Shannon was reportedly treated during the last year and a half of her relationship with Jamie, her book presents a remarkably sympathetic account of her ex. The only reason she felt she had to go public with her side of the story at all, in fact, is that following their breakup, Shannon alleges, Jamie turned on her and attempted to sabotage Shannon within shared social and professional circles. Last week I spoke to Shannon Thrace about her new book. Here are excerpts from our conversation. With this kind of issue, misgendering often presents itself, and you had a clever solution to that. The pronoun you use in this book when you're talking about Jamie is you. It's written almost as a as an extended letter to Jamie, although you cut into sections that are essentially traditional uh, narrative description. 
Can you tell me a little bit about that decision? Yeah, so it's it's in direct address. So yes, I'm speaking to Jamie. And I chose that not just because I don't know what to call Jamie now or because I have opinions on what Jamie should be called, but also because Jamie's identity changes through the book. So in flashbacks, obviously, Jamie is a male. And like, do I say her beard when we're talking about when Jamie was 20 and not his current self? And then, you know, Jamie identifies as a crossdresser for a while and he goes by male pronouns during that time. And then Jamie becomes transgender and goes by female pronouns. So it really helps me not get the reader lost. That's the main reason. Uh, there's one point that Jamie is, I mean, kind of almost a turf. <laughs> like there's one, it seems like there's some interregnum period where Jamie, he says, hey, look, I'm, I'm a man who cross-dresses. I'm not trans and that's okay. Which by the way, I think it is. Right. I guess that doesn't last long. But I remember reading it saying, oh, wait, okay, I'm kind of on Jamie's side a little bit. Right. Even in that interregnum phase of cross-dressing, <laughs> Jamie was like very militant about it. <laughs> Is, was that his personality? He was just kind of militant about stuff? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I wanted to include that because Jamie changed so drastically. You know, Jamie was definitely, like you said, willing to say he was a man, kind of militant about it, wanted to mentioned that he had male privilege and that he didn't want to make women uncomfortable. I don't know if militant is a thread that runs through his personality. That's an interesting thought. I think it's just that he had not yet been exposed to the activism told him to think otherwise. And so he was kind of saying things that I think reasonable people say, which is, I'm a man who enjoys fashion. I'm a man who's exploring my feminine side, but I am a man. And then I think later, you know, Jamie gets exposed to some activist dogma or something like that, and he starts to change. The attitude towards sex is interesting because you sort of open the narrative with this very sexual aspect where Jamie is is interested in sort of gender-bending pornography. And the reader at that point sees his interest in trans issues through a, a sexual prism. As the story goes on... I don't know if I'm reading this correctly, it's kind of the opposite. He's so wrapped up in neurosis and political issues that it almost seems like kind of sex recedes into the background. And well, certainly, as you describe it, your sex life certainly recedes into the background. I think it, it definitely started as a sexual interest. It started with, quote unquote, tranny porn at Jamie's request. So just to be clear to listeners, use that term in the book. That was a term that Jamie used. That was a term that Jamie used, and it's the term that the porn site used. So, yeah. We're not just casually slurring everybody as... as yes. Agreed. Agreed. I, I don't like the word, but that is what he called it. And yeah, he starts out with a sexual interest in this. He starts out with a sexual interest in pornography, the cross-dressing, role play in bed, in which he's the female, I'm the male, desire to be dominated, an interest in being called a bitch and a tranny, subjugated. And then I think it's kind of a feature of paraphilias, maybe, that they become a little bit more all-encompassing and they almost sabotage themselves. By the way, so, just paraphilia meaning to a layperson, that means a fetish. Yeah, I think, well, it's a, it's a little different than a fetish, I think, because a fetish is usually about an object. Okay. And a paraphilia may be 
a sexual interest in a situation, but still very, very focused in the way that a fetish is and very obsessive. Immersive, yeah. Yeah. But as Jamie gets involved in activism, he starts to pretend that there never was a sexual component, but also, as you say, seems to lose interest in sex or at least loses interest in all sex that isn't very, very specifically about what he wants. So yeah, it, it turns out to be a problem for our sex life and especially, as you said, for mine because I don't get what I want anymore. But he also becomes so increasingly focused and so interested in projecting a certain image that sex just becomes plagued with hangups. I guess that's the best way I can say it. Uh, at least at one point when you were, I guess, in a phase of being very active in terms of supporting Jamie's identity, or at least working on the relationship, you'd go to, I don't know, support groups or meetup groups. Uh, you had one description of going, it was, it was a restaurant. Uh, and I think you had this description of as soon as you walked in, there was this smell like of plastic and of hairspray and of like this very artificial sense because there were just all these products that were used to, it's kind of like backstage at a, a theater, I guess. I mean, these are biological men deeply vested in their, their trans identity. It was a very sad description because you describe people who, they're not happy. There's a kind of surface veneer of sort of euphoria and maybe it's a political posture and it's very positive and uplifting, but like when you talk to them for five minutes, they seem kind of sad. Am I reading that correctly? That it, I just, I remember it as a depressing scene in your book. Yeah, I think it's it's sad. I think more than anything, there was kind of a veneer of dishonesty, as you kind of alluded to. There was a lot of talk of being my true authentic self, but a lot of, yeah, sadness and trouble, a lot of troubled marriages, troubled relationships. Yeah, a lot of that was going on. And like you said, when I walked in, so I had worked before at drag shows. And when I walked in, that's kind of what I was reminded of. Because when you layer perfume over pantyhose and wigs and things like that, you get this plasticky smell. And yeah, the smell was there this restaurant scene that you speak of, it was both cross-dressers and trans women and just a couple of partners. But a lot of the trans women, especially who were older, had on very large wigs and lots of wraps and shawls. It was a, a very artificial looking scene. And yeah, it's you're right. There was a, an odd, depressing quality about it. If people just read the first line of your bio, they'll they'll see, oh, you know, you're, you're from a religious family in Kentucky bluegrass country. So, okay, this is a social conservative writing about how alienated she is by LGBT culture, but it's kind of the opposite. Um, you were alienated by Christian culture, and you went whole hog into, you know, I think you worked at bars. You, As you said, you worked at a drag show. You describe in the book how you were maybe unhappily, but you were in a polyam relationship with a, it was a lesbian relationship. But, you know, it's it's not like you walked out of your church and met a guy and got married and then suddenly had to confront the trans thing. Do you think you stuck with this relationship longer than maybe you would otherwise have because you had become vested in a very progressive understanding of identity and in a very progressive peer group where you were encouraged to be supportive uh, in this capacity as a partner to a trans person. I think that's why I tried very hard to be supportive. I don't think that's why I stayed in the relationship. I stayed in the relationship because we had been together 14 years and because I loved him very much and because he was a very lovable person before the transformation. He was very intelligent, 
really fun, as you mentioned in your review, which I love, by the way. Thank you so much for that review. That's um, staying in the edit, I promise. <laughs> I always keep flattery in the edit. <laughs> um, he was a great person. We got along wonderfully. We had a great sex life. We shared intellectual interests. And I wasn't ready to just let all that go. I mean, he meant a lot to me. And so the reason why I stuck with the relationship is both because I, I I cherished it. It was important to me. And also because he'd always been so reasonable. I thought, well, I know this person, you know, maybe it's a phase, maybe he'll come around, maybe I can talk to him. And so that's you why. you do describe him going through phases in his younger years where he was like kind of a cowboy phase and then like sort of... <laughs> I mean, it's it's not comparable, but you describe him as a, as a person who, who gets wrapped up in an idea and then dismisses it, right? Yeah, and I think what I'm describing there, especially, is that he was that he would get wrapped up in fashion ideas. So he right. would, you know, like at one point he dressed like Hunter S. Thompson with Hawaiian shirts and glasses, <laughs> and you know, and then maybe he would go through another a phase like dark blue Levi's and flannel, you know, and try to look like a hipster or someone from Seattle and then he would move on to something else someone so from Seattle <laughs> <laughs> like a like grunge Seattle grunge of the 90s I guess is what I mean they're not all the same uh, Shannon right right <laughs> um yeah he he would go through phases but he was always very reasonable and could be talked to and I think as he started to become more dogmatic I just I saw that happening and I was worried about it and I tried to work with him on it. And I just really didn't think that he was going to go <laughs> down the rabbit hole that he went down. I don't know if it came through in my, my review, but it, re reading reading your book is a frustrating experience because he kept upping the ante on the things he expected you to think and say and believe and do. And as a reader, you're, you're rooting for you. I mean, it's your book. You're, you're sort of frustrated because you're like, you know, just leave this, leave this person. They're just, they become such a narcissist. But then I, I kept reminding myself of a couple of things. It struck me like you didn't have anyone to talk to. Somebody you could just turn to and say, am I nuts? Like, am I crazy? Is, is this something I should be putting up with? Even when you go to a therapist, the therapist basically tells you they're on Jamie's side, right? That's totally fair. Yeah, I did not have anyone to talk to. Because you're alienated from your family, Well, right? I, I am uh, in touch with my mom. But I kind of didn't want to burden her with it. I also didn't right. want to, mm, I didn't want people to think that I wasn't okay with the cross-dressing itself because I was okay with it. And so, you know, with a parent generation, you know, it's kind of a hard topic to broach. And it's kind of like, I'm not mad that this is happening. I'm only upset that I can't be honest and that I'm being asked to believe weird things and and say things I don't agree with. So my mom wasn't the best person for that, even though I did talk to her some late in the process. I had a, a cousin that I could talk to. She lived far away. She also had a, as I mentioned in the book, she had a genetic disease that she died of during this time. So I also didn't want to burden her. It's true that our mutual friends were not super sympathetic. Our first therapist was not sympathetic at all. You report that you'd have these one-on-one -on -one conversations 
as the months went on, it became like almost a series of hashtags or slogans. I mean, some of these things have kind of become ironic laugh lines in certain subcultures. It's like, you're denying my existence or... Right. But he would kind of throw those at you, which there's there's no answer to things like this, right? I mean, the only answer you can give is, is oh, come off it. Get over yourself. Fuck off. Like, I mean, this is just you and me. This isn't a Reddit forum. Yes, right. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. it's also distancing you. It's it's like saying, I'm treating you like an online stranger. I'm using the same idiom to address you because the universe only exists of myself and this void out there that I call other people. You're right. And I think one thing to note is that I wasn't aware of this online transgender activism lingo because I wasn't immersing myself in that online as much as Jamie was. So in some cases, that lingo that made no sense to me at the time, I learned about in retrospect. So I knew that he was saying weird things and uh, thought terminating cliches, you know, but I didn't know where they were coming from. And I knew that he was sad and that he was depressed. And I just thought, well, I need to just figure this out. I need to figure out what he means. Well, so you say you weren't familiar with the language, but at the beginning, at least, Jamie had a blog and he invited you to kind of participate in it. You know, you'd write this thing, which was like very supportive. And but then he would take those words, which were meant for public consumption, I guess, like a form of sort of supportive propaganda, and then like throw them back at you and say, but you wrote this when you were having a private discussion about, you know, he, he didn't do any housework or whatever. One of the things that was happening was that Jamie was becoming radicalized outside of his experience with me, both online and in his in-person support group. And at home with me, we would talk in a particular way and then he would maybe go out and I don't know repeat what we had talked about and and hear from someone else yeah what she's saying is not okay you need to you know you need to tell her this you need to say that and then he'd come back and do that and I would just be lost like I, I remember one time he said I'm sorry that I'm not like whichever ones you think are the good ones and I literally had no idea what he was talking about so it's like he assumed that I was online reading and getting my opinions online just as he was and I know that when he said that I was just completely confused this episode is brought to you by BetterHelp an online therapy service that can help you get to your best self so anyone who follows me on social media or listens to these podcasts knows that I have a lot of stuff on the go family, writing, podcasting, gaming, culture war shenanigans. And while I try to put on a good-humored face during most of these escapades, the truth is that no one, including me, is immune from life's anxieties and hang-ups. And I've learned that talking to a therapist can help with these issues. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists, available 100% online. Plus, it's more affordable than other kinds of therapy. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist, and if things aren't clicking with one, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. There's no waiting rooms, no traffic to deal with, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com Quillette. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Quillette. You had this wonderful line you say to him i get it that you're in pain but i'm in pain too the difference is your pain is considered this epic civil rights issue and no one gives a shit about my pain right talk about power imbalances that seemed to be a major power yeah. imbalance. 
He's going to these support groups where they're saying, oh, yeah, Shannon's a bitch. You know, here's what you need to tell her. <laughs> but you don't you don't have any support groups. It sounds like your support right. group was a confused mother and a distant cousin who, who tragically passed away during all of this. Right. Part of this gaslighting effect is this profoundly ahistorical aspect of the narrative that develops where from going from a life of zero transgender affect within a couple of months jamie's claiming that he knew he was transgender at the age of four uh and and rewriting these episodes you know he almost got abused because he looked like a girl 30 or 40 years ago and and you're sort of there saying well that's that's not how you told the story a dozen times before there's this one crazy story you allude to it but i wanted to know more of the details where he wouldn't let you share a recipe for some reason (laughs) yeah yeah, so Jamie and I had, uh, as I say in the book, we were trying to homestead for quite a while, and we had a homesteading blog. Sorry, when and- you say homesteading, it's like you're wearing straw hats and you have pitchforks, and you're like, <laughs> like no, I mean, I honestly, I, I you kept you kept saying that in the book, and I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, you okay. or whatever, like just what happened? What what is what is homesteading? <laughs> so. No straw hats, but um, yeah, it's kind of a urban hipster thing to do. I think we had lived in Indianapolis. We wanted to move to the country. We had both been raised in the country to some extent. We wanted a simpler life. We wanted to garden and maybe try to support ourselves with the garden to some extent, maybe do some trading, bartering with, with other people and try to spend less get off the grid, have a rain barrel and maybe get a windmill and raise some goats, things like that. We didn't end up doing the vast majority of that. We did manage to have a very large garden. That's really about as far as we got. We had a rain barrel. No goats? (laughs) No goats. No. Um, (laughs) I really wanted goats. Jamie made that more complicated than I thought it needed to be. I think he was actually intimidated by caring for goats. And so that never got off the ground. Okay. So when Jamie and I were trying to homestead, we were keeping a blog together. He had a male name on the blog and we wrote articles about the various things we were doing. I know he like wrote an article about buying a wagon to carry firewood around in the yard and what it took to pick that out. And, you know, we would write about gardening. We would write different things. Well, I made this unusual recipe I posted it on the blog. A few years later, of course, we're in this transgender lifestyle and we aren't keeping that blog anymore, but it still exists. And I was working with someone who I ended up talking to about food and and I was like, you need to see this cool recipe I found. So I go home and I'm going to share that, but Jamie doesn't want my current coworkers to know that he used this male name. The other thing that was in the vlog is that I would call him my old man and he would call me his old lady and we thought that was cute and we were doing that frequently in these posts so suddenly he does not want someone who might be in his current life to know that we are a man and a woman who are married who call each other by these pet names he he doesn't want anyone to see that. I, I mean I thought of this because a friend of mine went to a wedding I'll anonymize some of the details here one of the people in the wedding had come out as trans in their early 20s. The two people were in their late 20s. And both of them had all these like photos and mementos out on these tables. It was like a big wedding. People were invited to contribute stuff. But the person who was trans made clear, you can't put anything from before I transitioned 
Like, were you not allowed to reference things from your personal history that connoted his male identity? Yeah, that was definitely a thing. I don't know that he explicitly said that apart from the recipe incident, but he definitely didn't want to show pictures of himself. I mean, one of the interesting things is that not a year before the cross-dressing, he actually had a huge lumberjack beard and was in this phase of wearing flannel. And there's pictures of him gardening, just very, very masculine. So yeah, he didn't want those seen. He was starting to create a narrative where, like you said, he had known all his life. And these pictures were inconvenient. And this blog of us homesteading was inconvenient. A lot of transgender activists want you to call the person by the new pronouns in the past, which makes it very difficult to talk. Plus, it doesn't make sense. You know, you know, I found myself in a situation where I was supposed to say, Jamie got a drill cut in her beard. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's <laughs> yeah. not, that's yeah. not how it seemed at the time to me or him, you know? And so why should we go back and rewrite that? But that's definitely a thing. You have amazing little vignettes about your peer group. There's a lot of gaming. There's a lot of uh, video games. There's a lot of Doctor Who type stuff, sword and sorcery, science fiction, which, you know, I, I get, you know, I'm into gaming myself. It doesn't sound like these people, a lot of them had kids. I've seen people theorize about how, in some cases, the desire to escape your sex is a, it's a desire to escape adulthood, a desire, in some cases, when you're younger, to escape puberty, to escape the determinism of sex, to escape the drudgery of having kids. And do you think in some of these peer groups, there's, it's, is a little bit of an escape into a fantasy universe? I know that in a lot of transgender subcultures, Japanese comic or cartoon sort of manga culture is a big thing with these either asexual characters or teenage girl characters that middle-aged men become obsessed with. Did you see any thematic intersection between some of these hipster hobbies and the transgender interest? I think a lot of the gaming and and the Dungeons and Dragons was with Jamie's male friends and Jamie's transgender friends. I don't think the female friends were as much into that stuff, but you're right about... Most of them didn't have kids. Like these are pretend worlds. Yeah, they are. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I think you hit upon something here with youth. I did think several times that Jamie seemed to be wanting to preserve youth and escape death. Jamie actually had a dog die really shortly before the cross-dressing phase began. And his mother died maybe, I want to say, five years before that. Yeah. And Jamie never really process that well ever you know you didn't process it i'm not going to spoil it but that that's that scene is a crazy oh, yeah. scene and it prepares you for the idea of jamie as escaping reality but yeah the read scene, certainly jamie has trouble processing the death at the moment it occurs but jamie never really processes the death even years later you know jamie i also say this in the book at one point says i wish mom were still here so i could tell her i'm transgender you know like he's not doing well with aging He's not doing well with the death around him. You know, it occurred to me at some point while writing this that I have had just dozens of people in my life die. Jamie had had precious few, maybe even just this one. So he was not equipped for that. He wasn't good at coping with it. Yeah, and there are these fantasy worlds with the gaming and the, the Dungeons and Dragons. I do think there's an element of trying to escape 
your book feels like, and this is this is conjecture, but maybe tell me if my instinct is right. It feels like a project that your therapist asked you to start doing. Not the therapist in the book, who's I think you described as Dr. Doris, who is like, you know, Dr. Twitter. I'm talking about, it sounds like you got real help after the fact. Did this start out as a kind of, you know, you go to a therapist and they're like, I don't know, they give you a doll and say, I want you to say everything you have bottled up inside to the doll. And I'm mad at you, Kermit. <laughs> Did it start as therapy? No, not as not as an assignment from my therapist, no. But certainly, yeah, there was a therapeutic aspect to getting that stuff off my chest. I think really early on in our separation phase, I thought to myself, well, what just happened to me was crazy and I want to write it down. And maybe I can even do something with that. I did for quite a while doubt myself as to whether I would or should bring that to fruition because I knew it would be embarrassing for Jamie. And before he sabotaged me and called me all sorts of names and I was still worried about respecting him. Um, when he did that, <laughs> I was like, okay, well, there goes one reason not to do this. I did it for catharsis at first. And it wasn't really very far in that I did decide I'm going to go ahead and, and try to write a book here. There's one point in the book where you mention that occasionally you were in a room with other partners of transitioning or transitioned biological men, and that especially in the stridently articulated online component of this world, there's this very strong pressure on wives or female partners, someone like you, to accommodate. And I guess, like, literally, you're supposed to now describe yourself as a lesbian because you're attracted to somebody, or you're supposed to be attracted to somebody who is female-identified. So did you meet any women who manage that? Their husband transitioned, and they were like, everything's great, and five or ten years later, they still had a good, vibrant, normal marriage? I know one woman who is still married to her transgender partner. She's the the only one. She's definitely very affirmative online and in public, but she is the one who emailed me and told me that she was having panic attacks and really didn't want her husband to transition. So there's a different story being told to the public than being told in private. Other partners, I, I didn't really I didn't really meet a lot of them. The couple that I met, the few that I met in person, they are no longer with their spouses. And then there were some online support groups that really most people in those weren't doing well. So I don't know a lot of successful stories. And now a message from the Commercial Break Comedy Podcast, which has got to be a commercially successful operation since they're the ones with enough money to advertise on the Quillette Podcast instead of vice versa. The Commercial Break features two longtime friends, Brian and Chrissy, who get together each Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to tease out the absurd elements of modern life, of which, as we all know, there are many. It's one of Apple's top three improv comedy podcasts and is available on all major podcast players and at youtube.com slash thecommercialbreak. Now, look, unlike at the Quillette podcast, you're not going to get a lot of black turtleneck stuff about, you know, the demise of liberalism, but you're going to get a lot more about important topics such as psychic readings gone awry and why would anyone want to date a ghost? And you're probably going to laugh a lot, which I like to think you do occasionally here at Quillette, but at the commercial break, that's the main point. The commercial break is available wherever you find your favorite podcasts, or you can visit tcbpodcast.com. That's tcbpodcast.com. 
or go to youtube.com slash the commercial break. And now back to the Quillette podcast. I don't know that there's a lot of books like this. I certainly don't know that there's a lot of books like this worth reading. Yours is fantastic. But the book that maybe in the in the current environment people expect is there's a Canadian woman. She wrote a book that superficially was like this. They made a big deal out of it on the CBC and, and elsewhere, where I think her husband came out as trans, and she wrote a book about how awesome it was, and her kid came out as trans, and she decided she was trans too. Throughout the entire process, CBC could not stop gushing about how amazing this family was. I'm not familiar with that book or that family, actually. No one pays attention to Canada anyway. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Um, I read Christine Benvenuto's Sex Changes. Her book is about her husband coming out as trans, and she was Jewish and had children and was fairly religious, I would say, and conservative. And so it never set well with her from the beginning. So that's a really different story because I didn't mind the transition in and of itself. Well, you have more credibility because you're, you were, I mean, you were the whole deal. You were a lesbian before, you were polyam, you, uh, you broke up this guy's marriage or he broke it up for you. Like you were going to Christian hell in 17 different ways already. So <laughs> trans, why not? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm an atheist and heretic in all sorts of ways. So that part of it didn't bother me. Even the fashion part of it didn't bother me because I'm not, like you said, I'm not that straight. So I didn't need a manly man. But you needed a man who knew you were in the room when he was having sex, right? Like That it's... is a good, yeah. <laughs> That's helpful. That line about that in, in your review, I thought was really insightful. I didn't, I never said, I felt like, he didn't notice I was in the room with him, but that's a really great way to put it. That's one of the moments where I was getting angry on your behalf. I was like, God, when is she going to leave it? And then I looked, I said, oh my God, I still have half the book left. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> how, mu how much is this woman going to put up with? Yeah, I think you were much meaner to Jamie than I was. That's one thing I, I thought about your review right away. I mean to him because I'm a guy. <laughs> and I, I know how men can be and... Look, men and women, I mean, they, they manipulate each other in all sorts of ways. I, it's, I don't want this to be like a Mars is evil and Venus is good type thing. But there's a lot of behavior you were describing that even when Jamie was fully identified as a woman, I was thinking, this is exactly what dick guys do to girlfriends. <laughs> the narcissism, the gaslighting, that was all the more exasperating because it came in a cloud of gobbledygook about respecting my existence. And it just, yeah, it drove me nuts. Reading your book drove me nuts, but it was fantastic. Thanks. <laughs> One final question. You were at a writer's workshop and you were discouraged from writing this book. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I was discouraged by peers. I had a couple of professors that were pretty supportive, but writing classes have workshops and you distribute your writing to your other workshop members, they give you theirs. You critique each other and say what you liked and didn't like. There were at least a few occasions on which, well, the one I describe in the book, this guy who wore nail polish and may have never said so, but for all I know, may have thought himself non-binary, judged on how he was dressed. He said, yeah, you can't write this. You can't write this. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I think I can. You know, he just said I couldn't question Jamie's identity and I couldn't. And, and all I had really written about was how 
it, it was a piece where Jamie did not feel feminine to me and I was supposed to pretend that he did. It was kind of just like my own internal thought process on that. So it's, it's really, yeah, it's really remarkable that you're expected to not even just hash out your own thoughts. But how does this jive with write your truth, no one can deny your truth, you know, no one can deny the subjective experiences you have? Because it's sort of like, write your truth, except that one thing. It, it is, it is. When it comes to trans people, you're not supposed to say a whole giant host of things. You're just not supposed to say them. Which might work if you're running a social media company, but it doesn't really work in a relationship, I'm guessing. Oh, no, it doesn't work in a relationship for sure. Yeah, Jamie and I became unable to talk about all sorts of things. Shannon Thrace's book is called 18 Months, A Memoir of a Marriage Lost to Gender Identity. It's available on Amazon and coming soon to other online retailers. Shannon, thank you so much for being on the Quillette Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I've really had a great time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Quillette Podcast. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. 